0: Welcome to Reality, my name is Carlos, I'm the lead pastor here, and I want to welcome you, especially if this is your first time, if you're exploring the claims of Christianity, um, if somebody invited you here in this place, I want you to know um, that we're so thankful uh, that you've come and that this is a safe place for you to be able to explore the claims of Jesus. So today, we're beginning a brand new message series called Glittering Vices. Somebody say glittering. Um, I'm going to need your help this morning because um, I I, it, I really believe that the Lord has put this on our hearts. That over the next seven weeks we are praying that God would lead us to find freedom from the vices that destroy our lives. And I have an assignment, f- like I have an assignment this morning. I want to encourage you, if you can, to take notes to receive the word. But at the same time, I want to equip you over the next seven weeks to get an understanding of what sin is and how destructive it is for our lives. My goal today is pretty simple. My goal is to define sin and give you its dynamics, and here's why. Because it's very difficult to defeat what you cannot define. Does that make sense? And if you want to find freedom in your own life from the vices that hurt you the most, you have to have an understanding of how they work. And that's what we're going to do today. My goal is to push you. You know, for some of you, it may just be like, oh, it's like a little, it's like a little tap. For others of you, I'm going to push you. My hope is to push you intellectually, spiritually, in different ways so that we can understand and truly gain freedom over the next couple of weeks. I want to pray for us today. In fact, if you're open to it, if you're open to receiving the word this morning that we just read from Genesis chapter three. Why don't you just, right where you're seated, okay, why don't you just open your hands and let's ask God to help us uh, this morning. Father, I pray that you would please give us ears to hear today, understanding, Lord. I pray that you would help us to find incredible freedom In Jesus Christ, wherever we are today on our spiritual journey with you, I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would come and meet us in a very special way. Please, God, give us strength. Give us understanding. Convict us where we need to be convicted and set us free by the power of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, The concept of sin has all but disappeared. The word seems to have lost not only its gravity, but also its meaning. This was the observation that uh, a famous psychiatrist by the name of Carl Menninger made in the late 1960s. When he began to see how the word sin was beginning to be redefined in our cultural moment in, in our context. And here's the observations that he made. He made at least two. Number one, he said that sin was beginning to be redefined as crime. Crime. So um, if someone sinned against their neighbor, um, they didn't really need the church to help them. What they needed was the state. So the people that began to monitor things were not so much pastors, but were the police. Sin began to be redefined not only as crime, but sin began to be redefined as symptom. Sin was a symptom of something that was happening inside of your soul. It wasn't so much something that you needed to be disciplined for or something that you needed to be punished by, but sin needed to be something now which you ought to be treated for. It was different issues. In the 20th century, human behavior began to be studied scientifically. And so what people began to do is they began to divorce human behavior from human responsibility so what you had now behavioral issues were reduced to being treated with pills and medication and therapy and by the way let me make this clear i'm not against therapy but i am against the reduction of all of humanity being reduced to having just sins as symptoms one of my mentors writes this he says this the state and the hospital now deal with what used to be the province of the church. Sin has disappeared because secularized men and women no longer include God. See, every society and um, every culture, every religion, every worldview, they have to deal with the problem of how humans act irrationally. (laughs) We can all agree, like human beings, we're jacked up. The difference is, The the difference comes in terms of how people interpret what that means and how we deal with the situation. Why do we act in evil ways? What's happened in the West, and I want you to lean in for this. I need you to, I really want you to understand this. What's happened in the West is that our primary religion, our primary worldview has become secularism, right? Secularism. Somebody say secularism. The concept of God in secularism, the concept of sin has been removed from the equation, okay? Now, this term secularism, if you grew up in the church, maybe you heard it, uh, you know, a couple of times growing up, if, especially if like you went to youth group, you know, it's not just a term, right, that divides like worship songs from like hardcore heavy metal screamo band songs, okay? Um, that's what people, <laughs> that's kind of how I grew up, like, hey, do you listen to secular songs? I'm like, I don't know, and so... That's not what it is. Listen, the term secular comes from a Latin word that means world. When you hear that term thrown around, secularism is referring to the world. It's a framework that denies that there is a higher order. It's a framework that denies the existence of a spiritual realm. It affirms that reality is confined to what we see, it's confined to nature. So, under the secularist worldview, all that is real is what's here and now. It's what you can observe, it's nature. Anything that you can see through a microscope, that is the dominion of reality. If, and if that's all that's real here and now And if all that is real is what you can observe in nature, then what happens is human beings become responsible for creating meaning. Everything ends up being about the human being determining meaning for themselves. We are the ones that ultimately determine what's right and wrong because under this worldview, and am I going too fast, by the way? Or it's fine. Listen, I'm passionate about this stuff. I, I, I... if if this is all that is right, if all that we see is the nature of reality, then what happens is the higher order is you. Like you're the one that determines right and wrong. You're the ultimate authority, which is why sin then under secularism is redefined. Under the system, we acknowledge that there's evil, but we don't have a concept of sin. So the solution to sin is not biblical or theological. The solution to evil is just intelligent human action. Does that make sense? So, science, technology, education become the saviors of humanity that will save us from the evils of disease and irrational human behavior. But what happens under the system is that it's not working. It's not working. It doesn't explain the human longing for transcendence. It cannot appropriately explain emotions such as grief. It doesn't account for the complexities of human emotions such as love. It's impoverished when it comes to its understanding of beauty. It cannot explicate creation or the design of humanity and more. If anything, what humanity is beginning to realize, especially in a world post-pandemic, is that technology oftentimes is not saving us, but it's harming us. It's like, dude, get this phone away from me. It's tough. What's going to happen with AI? I don't know. Maybe Terminator was right. Listen, here's the thing. Secularism denies the reality of God, the reality of sin, of human beings and how we were designed and of the world that we live in. And that's pretty much what sin does. If you want to understand a definition of sin, I'm going to give you one here. And we're going to be expanding on this over the next couple of weeks. What is sin? Sin is the denial of reality. Sin is the denial of reality. In other words, sin is the lie. We tell ourselves about God, about the world in ourselves. And as I mentioned to you in the beginning... What I want us to do is I want us to be able to define and understand the nature of sin so that we can defeat it by the power of Jesus, amen? How does it all work? Well, we're starting at the very beginning. For a moment, imagine paradise. Imagine paradise, Genesis one says this, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. In paradise, I want you to imagine we discover human beings are made in the image of God and that means not only are we significant by the very virtue that God made us, but we have creative dominion. Human beings, here's what I mean by that, human beings are glorious creatures. You're not the product of chance, but you have been intentionally fashioned by God. Here's an important facet about you from the Bible. God's given you abilities. God's given you intellect, creativity to cultivate the earth, to create. You have a purpose, you have a part to play in the kingdom of God. In paradise, imagine this for a moment. There is no um, there are no doubts about your identity, there's no issues of significance, there's no issues of purpose. Imagine a place and a time where all of that is solved for you. This is paradise. The Lord God says in Genesis 2 cause to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. I love this about God. He's a God that cares about beauty. He's a God that is good, right? This is human beings are are they're they're incredible creatures. And then he says including the tree of life in the middle of the garden as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In paradise there is delight. There is enjoyment. It's pleasing in appearance creation isn't bad god is a generous god amen god's a generous god he created earth listen for his glory but also for our good it's for our good it's pleasing to humanity then in genesis 2 verse 15 through 17 the lord god took the man placed him in the garden of eden to work it and watch over it right there is that sense of creative dominion to cultivate and the Lord God commanded to the men, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, right? He's not holding out on you, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. In the midst of an infinite amount of options for creativity and delight, God places one prohibition to humanity. It's one rule and it's simple. Then, in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So we discover in paradise, if you can imagine it for a moment, if you can step into that place that our heart actually longs for, (laughs) there is companionship. There is friendship. There is significance. There is purpose. But look at this. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame there's also intimacy. People are designed from, listen, from the beginning of the account of creation, you and me were designed to be fully known, and fully loved. Can you imagine a world with no shame? Imagine that in your life where, like, your relationships are perfect, and you fully know me, and I fully know you, and we have no beef, no judgment, no experience. (laughs) Like, we just express love in its fullest form. It's a vision. Paradise was a reality that now became a vision for us to pursue. Paradise is what our hearts long for. Don't you want this in your life? This is what we want. Purpose, significance, meaning, companionship, intimacy, friendship. All of these things were at the Garden of Eden. If you wanted to define paradise or capture it, here's what I wrote down. Paradise is a place. Where we experience a perfect relationship with God and others and live out our calling to create, cultivate, and delight from a position of blessing. (laughs) What else do you want? It's incredible. Paradise, in many ways, was childlike. It's childlike. It reminds us of what Jesus says in Matthew 18. He says this Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that fascinating? Paradise is this picture of this holy longing that we have in our souls. It's what God wants us to, it's what God wants to take us back to. And paradise in Genesis 3, in the account that we just read, is lost because of the great lie. It's lost because of the great lie. Here's how it happened. And this account shows us how it happens in our life. This is not just an account of Adam and Eve, but this is an archetype for what sin looks like in our lives and how it attacks the very souls that we have in order to destroy them. Here's what I want you to get about the dynamics of sin. Okay, number one, here's how sin begins. Sin begins with deception. It begins with a lie. Think about what Genesis 3 says in verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? Maybe you're here and, you know, and, and you're exploring Christianity and you're like, dude, okay, you're talking about paradise. Now we're talking about a serpent and Satan. What's next? Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings coming your way. No, No, listen, follow me for a moment. For those of you who are skeptical about the Christian worldview and you're like, okay. Um, I want to challenge your assumptions for a moment. What if the most important figure in all of human history, Jesus Christ, was actually right about the nature of reality? What if the reason why you automatically reject that idea is because of what people call chronological snobbery? Because you think you have it right because you're living in the year 2023. But what if Jesus was actually right? What if he's actually the one that determines what reality is and that actually knows what's going on inside of our hearts? Listen, this is what Jesus says about Satan. I mean, Jesus himself, he says this in John chapter 8, he says he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Maybe Kaiser Soze was actually right in the movie The Usual Suspects. Anybody ever seen that? He has a special quote, right? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he didn't exist. Satan's primary weapon of destruction is deception and lies. Lies about God, lies about who you are, and lies about the world. It's part of his nature. And I don't have to tell you that lies are so Devious, that they have the capacity to enslave the human mind, like the human spirit. It reminds me of the story that Frank Viola wrote about. He writes about this kid, Billy, who was a seven-year-old boy who was incredibly gifted as an artist. And he begins to do all kinds of paintings and drawings and writings. And he's so incredible that the parents actually get scared they get scared that Billy is going to grow up to become a prideful man. So you know what they tell Billy? They say, Billy, actually, you don't have any talent for um, drawing. Like, you're just not good enough, okay? You should really leave that to the side. And so after displaying all of this talent, Billy actually puts these things down. And 10 years later, he's in a high school class and he happens to be taking art. And then he begins to draw. And the teacher and his students begin to be like, you're incredible. You're like a prodigy. This is the most amazing thing that we've ever seen. But Billy is so enslaved by the lie that his parents told them because of their fear that he would grow up to be this kind of prideful man that he says, Please stop, stop, stop saying anything. I know I don't have talent for this. Stop it with the sarcasm. The teacher walks over to Billy's desk and says, Billy, this is the most incredible drawing I've ever seen of any student in this class but still Billy has a hard time believing what he is hearing you know want to know why because for the last decade his parents have been telling him that he can't draw he can't do a good job it's a lie the reality all along was that Billy was actually a gifted artist but that's not how he perceived himself the lie was easy to believe because it was repeatedly told to him by those he expected to tell the truth Satan wants you to believe a lie about God. Satan wants you to believe lies about yourself, about what you can't overcome, about what you can't do, about the way that this world is with lies and deception. As you think about the dynamics of sin, think about your own life. What's the lie? What's the lie, maybe, that you've been believing about God or about yourself? This is where sin begins. You see that lie, that deception then leads, number two, it leads to doubt. It leads to doubt, doubting first the goodness of God. Look at what Satan says. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He says in verse five, in in fact, God knows that when you eat, Eat it, your eyes will be open to you and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What's Satan trying to do here? He's He's trying to trick us, tricking Eve into thinking that God is holding out on her, that there's something better around the corner. The question of Genesis 3 is meant to make Eve double guess herself and she begins to doubt the goodness of God. He's questioning the same word that shaped creation, that formed her. It's interesting that Satan actually doesn't go after atheism here. <laughs> he doesn't say there is no God. He just challenges and attempts to make this, this line towards the goodness of God. That's a more powerful light. Can you see that? Here's the thing about doubt. There's a philosopher by the name of Michael Poliani. He points out this. He says, we cannot doubt something without simultaneously trusting in something else. Eve began to doubt God, and at the same moment she began to trust in the serpent. This is the way doubt works for you and for me, is which word are we going to trust? Who do we, leave is, who, who do we believe is going to actually be better for us? Is it what the enemy says, or is it what God says? So now Eve is questioning the goodness of God. Have you ever questioned the goodness of God? I certainly have. I have. When suffering strikes, when pain strikes, I'm like, God, is this who you are? I believe that he is. God is a good God. He's not holding out on us. But Satan will lead you to question his goodness. And then number two, he's gonna make you doubt the consequences of sin, the consequences of rebellion. Think about what he says in verse four. No, you will not certainly die. <laughs> the serpent said to the woman, here's how the lies of the enemy will get to you to doubt the consequences of sin. It's like, hey man, this isn't so bad, dude. This ain't so bad. This sin is not that bad, right? When you think about our context, you know, what are some of the easy things, right? Like, I mean, sleeping around is not that bad. You know, love her, love him. You know, it's not that bad. We, you know, we messed up, but we're fine, Okay. I got this, I'm older, I got needs, this movie's not that bad, I have a strong conscience, you know? This food is not that bad, right? Gluttony's not really a sin, but it is, right? It's tough. It's tough, the consequence of sin was death. It was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. Sin is serious. It's serious, part of my prayer for us in this series is that we're gonna regain a proper appreciation for the weightiness of sin and the holiness of God so that we can overcome the things that we struggle with. The enemy's so crafty that he'll get you to doubt the goodness of God and the consequences of sin. Once he gets you to that point where you feel like there's something better than what God has to offer around the corner, doubt, number three, if you're writing this down, I want to encourage you, listen, doubt leads to illegitimate desire. So it begins with deception. Deception leads to doubt. Doubt leads to illegitimate desire. Desire. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Genesis 3, verse 6. The very thing that was forbidden for Adam and Eve is the thing that begins to glitter. (laughs) This is where glittering vices comes from. This becomes now the very thing that human beings begin to long for. It's really interesting in the narrative. Satan actually steps out after the deception, after the lie, and after the doubt. That was enough, that seed. And now all that we see in the story is Adam and Eve experiencing this illegitimate desire. The writer is focusing on this. Look, the tree was physically appealing. It was good for fruit. It was aesthetically appealing. It was a delight to the eyes, it says in the text. It was enticing to become wise apart from God. It was desirable, it says in the text, for obtaining wisdom. See, her very imagination is confronted in that moment as she begins to want what she didn't even desire in the first place. What she knows to be wrong, what she heard God would say leads to death. His commands mean nothing at this moment moment right that's what happens in moments of strong temptation if you've been confronted with temptation we begin sometimes to feel as if though we know better than God and so we prefer the lie we tell ourselves the lie we are hearing is the actual truth that's what's so perverse about the nature of sin is that it leads us to prefer the lie which keeps us in bondage to the truth that actually sets us free Here's what one pastor says, he writes this, one of the great ironies of sin is that when human beings try to become more than human beings, to be gods, they fall to become lower than human beings. To be your own God and live for your own glory and power leads to the most bestial and cruel kind of behavior. Pride makes you a predator, not a person. That's what's happening here. Eve is tempted to become wise in her own eyes, outside of God, and it leads her and it leads Adam to this next step. Illegitimate desire leads to disobedience or to sin. Eve believes the lie of the enemy and eats the fruit and then willfully Adam disobeys, okay, with the idea in his mind that there won't be any consequences and everything is upside down in this narrative. Eve follows Adam, Adam follows Eve, and nobody follows God. Eve even minimizes the freedom that God had given them to eat from the trees of the garden. And that's what we can do in our lives. When we sin, we can begin to minimize the freedoms that we actually have, that God's given us in Jesus Christ. We begin to obsess about the healthy boundaries that he actually put in place because God is for us, amen? He's for you. He places certain boundaries in place because he created us in a particular way and his heart for us is to flourish. That's why it's so important to start with paradise, isn't it? That's why we start there. We start with the incredible design and good news of God. He wants you to flourish. He created you in the image of God. He created you to cultivate. He created you for significance, for purpose, for blessing. It says the Lord blessed them and he said this, like, it's for blessing. It's for companionship. It's for intimacy. This is God's desire for us. Praise God. And sin twists that design. And it leads to disobedience. James puts it clear in the New Testament. It says, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, It gives birth to death. I want you to see the progression, the dynamics of sin. Are you catching it? Deception, lies lead to doubt about the goodness of God, about the consequences of sin. That doubt leads to illegitimate desires. That illegitimate desire leads to disobedience or to Sin and don't worry. I'm alliterating because I got this from one of my Old Testament professors in seminary called Richard Averbeck. Um, he's really smart, really incredible. Um, and then from from that illegitimate desire comes disobedience, and from disobedience from sin, what happens? Sin then leads to shame. It leads to shame. Look at verse number seven. Then the eyes of both men of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. It's so interesting to me when I read that. i mean, they didn't know they were naked before? I don't know, you know. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the moment where humanity for the first time loses its innocence. Its innocence. Human beings felt shame for the very first time. It's the shame that comes from disobeying the person that you love. The shame that comes from disappointing those who love you the most from, from doing the, the wrong thing. It's the shame that comes, think about this, it's the shame that comes from believing somebody else, believing the lie about what they told you would happen. Satan has said to the woman, you're not going to surely die. You're going to be really wise. And the only thing she realizes is that she's naked. Right. There's a great irony here. And few emotions are as destructive as experiencing that sense of crippling shame. And can really turn our hearts inward. It can crush our souls. This is what David Sayamans, this is what he says about shame. This feeling of shame shackles many Christians in spite of wonderful spiritual experiences. And it also and the knowledge of God's word. In other words, this happens even though we know God, even though we have spiritual experiences with God, even though we know his word. He says, although they understand their positions. As sons and daughters of God, they're tied up in knots, bound by a terrible feeling of inferiority and chained to a deep sense of worthlessness. (coughs) This is what shame does. Shame tries to, and so as a response human beings, they they try to solve the situation themselves by by sowing fig leaves on themselves, as if though that's gonna be enough to cover their shame. But isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do ourselves in order to deal with the issues that we have in our own lives? We start trying to cover things up. We're going to try to cover our sins. We try to distract ourselves from reality until death. In order to ease the pain, we distract ourselves from shame. We begin to use man-made things to cover God-sized problems. It's like the famous preacher Adrian Rogers once said, he said, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay from the beginning of sin human beings have the instinct to cover our own sins and make our own garments hasn't it happened to you we use religion and work and other people and entertainment and more to try to cover our shame until we discover that none of those things actually do a good job for us and so from shame then that shame look at this dynamic from the sin disobedience We go towards shame, and then from shame, we go towards fear. Listen, this is the way sin works in our lives. Look at what happens in verses 8 through 10. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the same time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. That's kind of humorous, by the way. I'm going to hide in these trees, okay, from God. So the Lord God called out to them and he said to him where are you? And Adam said I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. What you see now in this text is that the intimate fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God it's now broken and it's now dominated by shame and by fear they walked with God in the garden they talked to God and God spoke to them but now because of sin what happens is there is a distance between them there's shame and there's even fear and what characterizes now the relationship between human beings and God because of sin is fear and there is shame and it's like Walls are beginning to be put up between man and woman. If you continue reading the narrative, and now walls begin to come up between God and human beings. That shame leads to fear. Fear leads then finally <clears throat> to scrambling. Scrambling. That's what I mean by scrambling. Scrambling is like we act out in different ways. We begin to cover up or we begin to hide Or we begin to blame. Covering up is, for instance, is one of the greatest things that we do as human beings. We say, if I do good enough things, I'm going to tip the scales in my favor. It's kind of like what the Egyptians used to do back in the day, right? Um, Like They talk about this God, you know, where they put the... uh, What's that God again, man? He would put the the feather of a particular kind of animal. Anyways, guys, I'm getting mythological. Never mind. Listen, um, you can look it up online after the service. But here's the thing. The idea was, you're going to be able to go in the afterlife if you're good enough that's what we do to justify ourselves if i go to church if i do the religious thing if i donate enough money if i serve the poor i'm going to justify the shame and the sin and the fear in my own life but what we learn in the bible that's not enough none of us are ever good enough we hide how do we hide from god we hide our sin we rationalize it what may happen for some of us is as we think about a particular sin in our life that we actually need freedom from, you're going to say things like, man, you know, but, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. Like, like, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And that's just kind of normal. And that's how human beings are. And I'm just going to rationalize the sin. That's what we used to hide. We hide our sin, but then we also cover up, we hide, and then we blame. Man, we say things like this, and it, it wasn't really my fault, and therefore I'm not accountable. You should have seen what they did to me, man. They did me wrong. It was a difficult time. I was with the wrong crowd. You name it. dude. We'll come up with all sorts of things. We'll scramble as a response to the shame and the fear that we experience from sin. But what I don't want us to miss is that even in this text, even at the beginning of what theologians call original sin, there is a glimmer of hope in the dark. Because in Genesis 3.9, let's read it again. This is what happens. God actually comes down and the Lord God calls out to the man and he says to him, where are you? It's a rhetorical question. He knows where he's at, right? The question that he's asking has to deal with the position of Adam's heart in relation to God. What have you done? Where are you? It's like, God does the same thing with us. Like, hey, he's the one that takes the initiative. I love this, that even at the beginning of sin here in the book of Genesis, God is the one who pursues. God's the one who pursues us in the midst of our sin. It breaks his heart. He broke the design and God says, where are you? Where are you? Maybe that's what he's saying to some of you today. If you're stuck in your sin, if you're apathetic, unbelieving, like addicted, wh- wherever you may be on that spectrum. Listen, I mean, God's like, where are you? Man, where are you? Where are you? Not to condemn you, but to pursue you back to him. To pursue you back to him. Did you know? that Jesus came in order to undo what the first Adam did. See, Jesus is known in the Bible as the second Adam. This is what Romans five tells us, it says this, if by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, in the garden, Adam wasn't able to withstand the temptation and he ate of the fruit. But what did Jesus do? In the garden of Gethsemane, before going to the cross, he submits his will to the Father and he says, man, let this pass from me if it's your will. But he submits to him and he does exactly what God planned for him to do. Think about it. In the garden of Eden, Adam takes the apple. In the New Testament, Jesus says, you know what? Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. God pursues us and he pursues you in the midst of your sin. Like if you're here and you're enslaved to sin and you don't have a relationship with God, the goodness for you and for me is that Jesus Christ came to die on a cross on a different kind of tree and he put your sins and your shame on that cross and he rose on the third day so that we can have life in him, so that we can experience freedom in him. If you don't have a relationship with him this morning and and, and you want to ha- and you want to experience that and you want to experience a personal relationship with Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that in that moment. He extends that to you. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved from your sin. You'll be saved from the separation that you experience between God and yourself. But if you've been following Jesus and you're listening to this message. What I want to encourage you to do this morning, in a moment we're going to sing, we're going to pray. What I want to encourage you to do is to think about maybe one dominant lie that you have been believing in your life. I want you to think about a lie that leads to doubt, and that doubt leads to illegitimate desire, and that illegitimate desire leads to disobedience and fear, And shame. What is one lie that today you can come before the Lord, even over the next weeks, that you're praying that Jesus will undo and root out of your soul so you can experience freedom? What is that for your life? And do you want that? I want to challenge you in a moment just to think about that, to ask God to reveal that to you so that we can walk out of here of free people who walk and experience the freedom of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that <clears throat> you shepherd us through these different issues of sin, God. I pray right now for a sense of freedom in each of our lives, Lord. God, I thank you for the gospel, Lord. I thank you that we don't have to live in shame, we don't have to live in fear. God, that we can live in the truth. You said that the truth will set us free, Lord. God, I pray that we would fill our minds with your truth, Lord. God, that if we've been believing lies about who you are, that we've been believing lies about who we are and what this world is about, God, that today you will unmask that, Lord, in the name of Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would give each person here this sermon. Holy Spirit, please speak to us, Lord. We need you. We need you, Lord, please, to uncover the lies of the enemy in this place, God. I know that he wants to keep every person here in bondage, Lord Father, but that's not your plan. You're a good God, Lord. You're a good God who designed us for more and I pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit that you would begin to undo the lies of the enemy in this place. God, I also pray for those who are here who (laughs) the first lie that must be undone in their hearts is that you don't love them or that they're not good enough for you that you're not real enough for them. God, I pray today, God, dear, get a sense of your closeness and your nearness. In fact, just as we're praying, I wanna invite you, listen, if you're here, and you're like, man, I, I wanna give my life to Jesus, I wanna have a relationship with him. and You would know, because the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart and inviting you, I don't save anybody, nobody else here saves anybody. This is something between you and God. If that's you, and you would say, you know what, Pastor Carlos, I wanna pray for that. I want to give my life to Jesus today I'm tired of waiting I'm tired of scrambling I'm tired of hiding I'm tired of covering up I'm tired of experiencing this fear and this shame and these lies and this deception if you're tired of that and you're ready to give your life to Jesus just where you are why don't you tell him God please I confess that you are Lord I confess my sin to you and I pray that you would save me help me to have a relationship with you today I'm tired of playing games I give my life to you Would you change me from the inside out? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead, that you will be saved. Just as we continue to sing and to reflect, I want to invite you now. You can stand. You can stay seated. I want to invite you to take a next step today. Whatever that... For for those of you, if you are here and you're praying and you asked Jesus to have a relationship with you, I want you to let us know so that we can pray for you. I want you to write that down in a connect card. You can do that as we're singing. You can do that at the end of the service. You have questions, we'll be here for you. If you're here and there's a lie going on in your mind, in the area of life, I want you to write that down. Just as we sing, I want you to pray about that with God so that we can remain in prayer for that over the next coming weeks and ask him to liberate us from those things that hold us hostage. Would you do that? Would you do that? Let's, Father, we thank you. We praise you, God. Thank you that you're a God of freedom. Thank you that you made a way for us through the cross. I so ask you not to experience this, Lord. Father, we worship you. We respond to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.